Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode of IFG Live. This is an in conversation with Andy Haldane, the Chief Economist at the Bank of England, and Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute for Government. Andy, great to have you with us. Thank you, Bronwyn. Very nice to be here, albeit remotely. Albeit remotely and in rather pressing times. So thanks very much again for your time. Uh, there's two things really I wanted us to discuss. And one is to begin with the economic shock and the difficulties facing policymakers, and then to go on to some of the things that the bank is. Uh, is doing itself directly. And then we've had an interesting range of questions on both those things come into us, which I might um, forward to you and see what you make of them. But let, let's just start off with where we are and what we might make of, the, of what some people have called an economic catastrophe that is about to hit us. How bad is it, do you think? Well, it's certainly an economic crisis. I don't know about catastrophe, Bronwyn, but um, the first half this year, economically, uh, is set to be um, very ugly. I mean, it's likely, I think, will be some relatively modest contraction even in the first quarter of this year, even before uh, really the social distancing policies really came into play. And then turning to the second quarter, the quarter we're in, they were very likely to see a, uh, a very much sharper uh, contraction. And then those patterns will, of course, be replicated right across the world. So everywhere is facing the same shock and is facing the same uh, collapse uh, in economic activity and economic confidence, you know, much of it of necessity, you know, by government fiat as a result of the... Made necessary for public health. For public health reasons, quite quite so. So, I mean, you can cut into this in, in several ways, but um, look at the various categories of expenditure in the economy. Uh, one of the largest is so-called you know, social consumption, spending on on holidays, on eating out, on going out. I mean, that's almost twenty percent of all that we spend. You know, well in excess of ten percent of GDP. And those containment policies mean that you know the larger part of that, the vast majority of that, will have been effectively shut down um, completely. That's a hefty bite to take out of the spending of households. You could add to that, you know, spending on things that we could delay, for example, clothing and footwear and uh, cars and houses. And you know, our strong sense there is that those that spending that could be deferred is being deferred right now. And that's another, you know, hefty perhaps twenty percent of the spending basket. Uh, work-related spending, that also is going to take a hit because many people, of course, uh, aren't working or uh, are working from home and not spending as much. That's the better part of half of our shopping basket that's going to be severely uh, curtailed by the containment policies. And that's before you even get to um, what companies will be doing. It's unlikely many companies will be investing and therefore, their spending too, I think, will be laid low. Certainly for the first quarter of, of this year. So we are going to see, you know, a hefty hit to activity. You've seen forecasts already. Most recently, the OBRs for the potential. Yeah, well, we had, we found, and as they said, look, uh, this is a scenario. I mean, everyone is feeling their way in this, but they were talking about a thirty-five percent peak to trough uh, for. Uh, fall in in uh, within three months, and um, and then at perhaps thirteen percent overall. Again, they were falling over themselves to say, "Look, we're just trying to 
see what this might look like. Everyone really doesn't have a sense of the shape of this yet. Um, but that would still be the largest annual fall in UK GDP since the um, early 1700s. Um, and the IMF has, 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 you know, talked about this being the worst recession since the Great Depression. But what, I mean, just the, the ways that you've been describing of the suddenness of the onset of this and the fact that it affects really, I wouldn't say all countries, but many countries in the world at, at the same time. How different does that make it from what we've experienced before in recession from the point of view of, of governments and policymakers trying to do something about it? Well, I remember... Um maybe even chatting to you um, 10 years ago at the time of the global financial crisis, 10, 12 years ago, saying that actually I thought this was the first ever genuinely global financial crisis in the sense of, of wrapping up uh, most countries uh, across the planet. You know, previous financial crises haven't quite had that global reach. Uh, it wasn't fully global even back then, but this one plainly is. This is a simultaneous uh, and enormous shock to to pretty much every country on the planet, and many of them responded in very similar ways by by locking down their economy for understandable public health reasons. So, you know, whereas even after the global financial crisis, you know, many Western economies were reliant on growth in China to keep their economies growing. Um, this time, many of us are in a similar sort of boat, if not the same boat, and that provides an extra headwind, an extra, an extra dimension. It also means that you know, with the best will in the world, there are real limits to what public policy can do, uh, certainly to offset the effects of the containment policies in particular. You know, if you put... Well, this is really what I've got in mind, because it is very hard to find... Um an escape route, if you like, if other countries are feeling the same. You can't look to exports, you can't look to trying to get people to spend more money on things like restaurants, if that's precisely what you don't want them to do. And you have to hope that some of this spending, you said, may be deferred, will come back, but, but it may not. Well, I think we'd expect uh, some of it to come back, you know, as and when the social distance policy, distancing policies are reduced or indeed in time uh, eliminated. Um, people will want to spend um, on clothes and footwear. They will want to go back to buying new cars and new houses. They will want to, in the fullness of time, uh, go back on holiday, whether here or abroad. And they will want eventually to return to the, the pubs, the clubs and the restaurants. And some of the factors holding that back right now are uh, matters of public uh, policy choice, understandably so. Uh, even after those uh, policies are relaxed, I think there's certainly a chance that people might be reluctant themselves to want to spend too vigorously or to go out uh, and socialise too much. And, and that might mean, uh, it will certainly there will be some recovery, there'll certainly be a bounce. Will it bounce back immediately to base? I mean, that, I think that is an open question. It comes in a way of this question of you know, what shape will the recovery take? You know, which letter of the alphabet? Um, people have talked about V, v or U or W if we, if we, if we have, a, have to um, put on curbs again. Yes. What's the bank doing to try and understand what the effect of the shutdown and the potential for recovery is? And I'm thinking of, of you know, how you often um, 
use your network around the country to get a picture of what, what's what's going on and and uh, get information from banks themselves about what's what's happening with companies and so on. Yes, well, it's it's using the existing channels, but really much more intensively than I ever remember. I think much more intensively than, than ever has been the case. Bronwyn, as you mentioned, a very important one of those is we have a network of what about ten thousand companies across the UK. Uh, that we speak to all the time about how things are going. Uh, and as we await the official data on the economy, we've seen, um, we've seen it's been very welcome, actually, a splurge of new economic indicators providing a sort of real-time read on how well, or in this case, how badly the economy is doing. And we are pretty much getting a real-time read as well uh, from our company contacts right across the country. Actually, I was speaking to them, 850 of them this morning, actually, uh, over a webinar about um, what they are facing, what they are seeing, and what might best be done to address it. So that that intelligence, that that those company contacts have really been invaluable during the course of this crisis for having a sense of what is uh, what is going on. Because, of course, first and foremost, this unlike ten or twelve years ago, this is a crisis whose epicenter uh, economically is among companies and workers rather than among the financial sector. The cash flow, liquidity and solvency problems are now within companies, non, uh, non-financial companies rather than financial companies. And so what are they telling you about whether the economy will suffer permanent damage, whether they're going to have to shut down, what's, what's happening to jobs? Well, for now, I think people are understandably trying to, as best they can, you know, bridge over the cash flow and liquidity shortage that they are understandably facing, given that their revenues have taken a, a huge hit uh, by dint of the, the lockdown. And of course, you know, many of the government schemes we've seen, uh, including probably most importantly the job retention scheme, is with a view to supplying them with uh, cash to tide them over, to bridge over that uh, collapse in their revenues and the various credit schemes, I'm sure we'll get on to Bromwyn, are with a similar uh, aim in mind, mm-hmm. providing a short-term cash flow support to help them keep their businesses, uh, to keep their workers, uh, and to keep their businesses uh, alive without cutting too deeply into either the workforce or into their investment spending. Because those are the things that longer-term would cause, you know, damage to the economy, cause scarring to the economy, and would result in this, uh, in the recovery being longer lived, uh, and some of the damage being permanent. Mm. What's to play for, I'd say? Well, you're exactly right. I I was going to ask you about uh, some of the credit facilities that are out there. And and that's not what I mean. The bank is administering the the coronavirus corporate financing facility, as it's called, on behalf of the Mm. Treasury. And that provides cheap finance to the largest companies. How's that going? That's going well. So I think um, I draw a distinction here between basically two sets of government schemes catering for firms of different sizes. As you say, the the one catering for larger companies, which is the um, Coronavirus Corporate Financing Facility, CCFF. It's a government scheme, um, but run by the Bank of England, uh, catering for, for larger companies, those at or close to investment grade. Uh, that has been running for a few weeks now. We've got uh, probably north of 10 billion uh, or so out of the door through that scheme and a lot more in the pipeline, uh, actually, that's ready to be drawn whenever companies 
want it. And I think that side of the equation is working passably well in uh, difficult circumstances. We've also seen private credit markets, uh, corporate bond markets, open up for those larger companies as well. So for sure there are difficulties, but I think... Okay. So, so are the difficulties, I don't mean to ask a leading question, but are the difficulties more at the smaller company end? Because there's a great deal of uh, discussion, as you know, in the financial press and media about the difficulty of companies in actually getting access to some of the, uh, the bank loans that the government had intended, uh, whether because the schemes are very complicated or, or whatever. And you can hear this ricocheting back and forth and some people saying, look, uh, the banks, the villains in this, they're not, they're not lending uh, well enough. And the bank saying, no, look, we, we really have to um, lend to people or companies uh, what we think are good, good risks. Um, you know, we haven't been told to completely change our criteria on this. Um, we're, we're just do, dealing with it as, as, as normal. And, the you know, losses in the economy have got to sit somewhere. If you tell us that they've got to sit with the banks, then um, then we're not going to have as much capital to support the recovery as, as, as everyone would like. And there, there is a debate out there about why some of the government's intended measures haven't gone ahead as quickly as they might have liked. Do, do you have a view on that? Well, the, um, and the problem you, you mentioned, which is SMA access to finance. Uh, I mean, let's be clear, it's a problem we've had of very long standing yeah, in this country. And in some ways, um, that, that age-old fault line uh, has just opened up very materially, given this, the, 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 the scope and the speed with which the cash flow uh, problems um, have uh, arisen. Of course, this problem is intrinsically much harder than for larger companies. There are many, many, many more of those smaller companies None of them will typically have uh, a rating, and assessing their viability is a is a time consuming a time consuming process for the the banks. Yeah, you know, that was ever thus, and never more the case uh, than right now. I mean, from from the bank side, they of course are businesses too. They of course are businesses too, and they too are facing you know operational constraints. They are not at full staff numbers. They are working remotely, as are many of us. And they are at the same time being asked to process, I'm guessing, many more small loan, uh, small firm loan applications than at any time in their, any time in their history. Uh, and that poses difficult operational challenges and different um, difficult judgments on credit risk and company viability. So I, I wouldn't have the banks as being uh, the villains of the, the peace in this situation, they face their own constraints. I know they're working exceptionally hard to get as many loans as possible uh, out the door, courtesy of the government's sea uh, bills uh, program. Um, we've seen already, uh, Bronwyn, uh, several refinements, improvements, actually, to that uh, scheme, the removal of the need for personal guarantees for some of the smaller loans, the removing of the necessity of, of only offering Seabills loans after commercial loans, if commercial loans don't exist, and, and most recently the expansion of the scheme. We've now got, a, as of today, a CL-Bills scheme, in other words, a, a Seabills scheme for larger uh, companies without a, there's no turnover uh, cap on, uh, on borrowing uh, now. And all of those, I think, help in fill some, filling some of the gaps and removing some of the frictions from the existing uh, scheme. We'll see how much, when the latest numbers come out, has been lent. Last time we 
the numbers came out, it was only a billion pounds, just north of a billion pounds and around 6,000 companies. I'm hoping when the numbers for next week, uh, for last week come out, we'll see a big ratchet uh, up uh, in that. Uh, nonetheless, I'd say, as Andrew Bailey, uh, the governor said on Friday, it's important uh, to keep this scheme under review, given we know there are many companies with very material near-term cash flow uh, needs. That, that's probably measured in terms of tens of billions rather than single-figure billions. And therefore, it could be we should keep in mind the possible need for further refinements to the scheme. Uh, there's decisions for government. It's their money. It's the public purse after all. But, you know, we and others have been struck at looking at some of the other schemes, small firm loan schemes around the world, Germany, Switzerland, the US, which have used 100% uh, guarantee. Uh, that has some downsides. The upside it has is that then... Do, do, you, do you see it as part of the bank's role to, as you said, look, this is a political decision. In a sense, how to use the countries, how to use the public's money uh, and what to support. And it's absolutely rightly taken by politicians. But do you see it as, as the bank's role to um, advise the government on whether uh, schemes in other countries, for example, giving 100% backing to loans, as you've, you've just described, whether those might be better or to give the government your view on the, um, if you like, the urgency or the peril facing the economy? We can do all of those, and we are doing all of those. We, um, uh, you know, we're doing uh, real-time monitoring of the economy to gauge the extent of the uh, collapse. We're in the fortunate position of being able to talk to both the uh, demand side of the credit market, in other words, companies, through our company contacts, and the supply side, by dint of being the regulator and supervisor of the banks. So we uh, are in the lucky position of having both sides of that argument and listening to both of those sides and trying to understand where the real frictions might lie. And we've, we've used that intelligence, uh, including with government, to help in uh, offering advice on how that scheme uh, might be uh, refined or might be... Uh, improved, so that we'll we'll keep on doing. But you're right; these are ultimately choices, fiscal choices, that are rightly in the hands of politicians and governments. Well, let's come on to some of the things the Bank of England has done it, itself. Interest rates were already very close to zero before the virus descended. How, how much has the bank been able to do this time in in that domain to support the economy? Yes, well, we've um, yeah, as on the fiscal side, we we know there are limits in. And, and we certainly can't take action that would prevent formal activity, but we can try and minimise some of the collateral damage. Uh, and that's really been the aim of the, the many and various policies we put in place over the past month uh, or so. Scarcely a day goes by, Bronwyn, without us doing uh, something, something new often. Mm. Uh, I mean, the key elements of that, I'd say, one, as you say, we, we cut bank rate from an already fairly low level of 0.7% uh, now to, to 0.1%, you know, pretty close to, uh, to zero. Uh, that will certainly help a bit those borrowers, whether households or companies. We've seen that, that rate cut largely pass through to mortgage rate, variable mortgage rates and to variable company borrowing costs so far. So that will help borrowers, It'll cut them some cash flow uh, slack. We've backed that up, as you may have seen, with an extra £200 billion 
of asset purchases, something goes by the name of quantitative uh, easing or, or QE. Yep. The lion's share of that will be in the form of government uh, securities, government bonds. Um, I'm sure we might come back to how to think about that intervention, but um, one of the main reasons for having done that is really to keep the lid on longer-term borrowing costs, not just for the government, but for the whole economy. Um, we saw some signs a few weeks ago of them picking up, and our asset purchases put a lid, indeed lowered uh, those safe yields right across the yield curve. This is about keeping interest rates both short and long at low levels, and indeed government bond yields are at unprecedentedly low levels. We are going to top up those asset purchases by buying, in addition, company securities, corporate bonds of those companies making the most material contribution to the UK economy, at least £10 billion of purchases of those. In response to our announcement, we have, as I mentioned earlier on, seen the corporate bond market actually opening up a bit and yields falling, which is, which is good news. Yeah, the couple of things we've done just for completeness, very much in the same spirit of keeping uh, credit flowing, was that we created a new facility uh, for borrowing by the banks in this case, but with a view to them on lending then to firms and to households. Indeed, the scheme was designed to provide the strongest incentives possible to lend to uh, SMEs. That's why we, we called it the term... Mm -hmm financing uh, scheme uh, for small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, and that you know, might offer as much as a, an extra perhaps £200 billion of funds to banks to on-lend to the economy, to households and to companies. And last but by no means least, our, I'm on the Monetary Policy Committee, our sister committee, the Financial Policy Committee, very early on, about a month ago now, cut the regulatory requirements uh, of banks to enable them to lend more without running up against a regulatory constraint. And that too might give them perhaps an extra, you know, 200 billion pounds uh, of lending that they could do without worrying about their regulator knocking on the door. So that's a... Yeah. All right. So there's a lot, lot of things the bank's doing. Let's just um, dig into just a, a couple of them um, perhaps briefly. One thing I wanted to ask is that some, obviously the government is issuing a lot of extra debt, as, as you've been describing, and some people have been very concerned about whether there will continue to be a market for this and how the market for UK government bonds really compares to those for other countries. Yes, well, I mean, you're right, and the OBR made clear uh, um, just the other week the potential scale of the extra borrowing that the government um, will need to carry out, partly as, as a result uh, the extra spending commitments uh, that they've made and partly uh, as a result of the, the, the fall in economic activity, which will result in a hit to, to tax revenues. I mean, so far, um, the gilt market, I wouldn't say has taken that in its stride, but uh, it has functioned pretty effectively. Uh, gilt yields remain uh, at, uh, as I say, extremely low uh, levels. I can ask you, what I don't mean to be a kind of wide-eyed way, but but why? Uh, you know, we're moving into a world of much, much more government debt. Um, many governments, not just this one. Is it something you think the market's 
will continue to be relaxed about. Uh, you you ac absolutely accurately describe what they're what they're doing right now. But do you think they they would just accept that the world, many of these countries, has just moved into one of much higher debt? Well, although um, deficits will be large, perhaps double digits, uh, and debts uh, will be much larger, perhaps triple digits in both cases as a fraction of, uh, of GDP. I mean, the market, uh, I think, has uh, understood uh, that as being a necessity, given the uh, situation we find ourselves in. I mean, if you look back at uh, the history of debt to GDP ratios in the UK, I think I'm right in saying during the course of the 20th century that there were more years when that was in three figures than it was in two figures. And the market absorbed that debt then, and I have no reason to expect it wouldn't absorb it now, given that capital markets uh, are even deeper and the pool of money looking for a safe home right now has never been larger. And indeed, you know, that quest for safety does... Uh, mean that the government has been one of the important reasons why I think the government bond market has stood tall so far. I see no reason why that shouldn't continue. And should we worry about inflation? Well, we should, because we should always worry about inflation, especially if you're me. Uh, sitting uh, there's a perfect answer from the Bank of England. Andy. Well, we have a target. So, um, you know, I get sent to the tower if we miss the target, Bronwyn. So very important that we, we stick to that. And very important we reinforce the primacy of that uh, right now. I mean, there are some big forces acting on inflation in the UK and globally right now. I mean, inflation started the year, feels like a lifetime ago, of course, uh, below target. And we were forecasting it might fall a little bit further below its 2% uh, target. I mean, as it is, with oil prices having fallen as far as they have, and they've fallen again, of course, uh, this morning again, uh, we expect that uh, inflation will probably fall even further below target during the early part uh, of this year. I think what happens thereafter in, in some ways is much more interesting because that's the horizon at which this starts to matter from a sort of policy perspective, from a monetary policy perspective. And there I'd say yeah, the, the judgments on inflation are two-sided and, and both sides of the inflationary seesaw have have been affected by big shocks. So on the downside, we've of course seen the collapse in uh, economic activity that would tend to depress prices. We've seen the, the fall in oil prices I mentioned, that would depress inflation. We've seen the fall in asset prices, that too would tend to depress inflation. On the other side though, we've seen a fall in sterling, that pumps up inflationary pressures. Mm -hmm. We are seeing you know, shortages of certain types of goods, which is causing the you know prices you know, to rise. You know the, the consumption basket of the average person right now is slightly overweight pasta and paracetamol. The prices of both of which uh, are going up quite a lot. So people's personal inflation rates actually feel quite high at the moment. We need to be mindful. Yes, that's a good point. We need to be mindful of that. I think, as we do with the fact that we have injected. Yeah, an enormous, an enormous amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus, which we would expect to show up uh, over the course of the next, you know, uh, few months and, and, and quarters. So the inflationary judgment's a difficult one. We'll have more to say about this in our monetary policy report in a couple of weeks' time, but be absolutely clear, you know, our job as monetary policy committee is to hold dear to that target. Um, and that is one of the most important reasons, I think, why 
you know, some of the slightly racier talk about, I don't know, monetary financing and helicopter drops, I think is, is misplaced because ultimately, as long as we hold dear to the inflation target, we don't resort to the inflation tax and the NPC remain in charge, I think those, those risks are, are, are hugely overblown in some of the public commentary. Mm. Let me ask you finally on the bank's role, what you might regard as another kind of line of racy debate, to use your, your word, about the monetary financing. And some people have said, look, is this really compromising the bank's uh, independence in a way? We had, uh, on April 5th, uh, Andrew Bailey, the governor, said the bank wouldn't engage in directly buying government bonds. And then on the 9th, the Treasury said, uh, the bank was going to do that and finance it by printing money, essentially. Um, do, do, is, is, that, is there an exit from that? And does, does that um, feel like a, a compromise of, of the bank's role in any way? I think one of the sources of the uh, confusion, not yours, uh, Bronwyn, but uh, some of the public confusion thank around thank this. Thank you. But, uh, you agree that the debate is out there. It might not be right up there with how to get masks and tests to the front line of hospitals, but it, but, but, but it, it has been flickering there for the past uh, couple it of years. It has, and understandably so. You know, people observe that uh, you know, the government is running bigger fiscal deficits, which it plainly is. Uh, they also observe uh, more government debt appearing actually or prospectively on the central bank's balance sheet. Well, of course, what that misses is it confuses you know, correlation with causation. You know, what's not happening here is not that the government's running a big fiscal deficit, therefore we feel duty-bound to buy the bonds that finance it. What's actually happening is that, guess what, the economy's been hit by a colossal shock, we've just discussed that, and that necessitates... Uh, very large amounts of fiscal and monetary um, support, which means fiscal deficits go up and the central bank's balance sheet uh, goes up. And that's really the story of the past uh, several weeks. Nothing mysterious, nothing suspicious about that. Assuming, assuming that we hold dear to the inflation target as we were required to by statute, and that the independence of us in setting policy to hit that target is preserved. And those are, in the UK, pretty strong institutional safeguards. I mean, you would know from the IFG the importance of those institutional safeguards. And here in the UK, they are strong. They are strong because they are transparent and accountable. And that gives me lots of confidence and should give the gilt market confidence but this isn't monetary financing. This is not helicopter drops. This is simply fiscal and monetary policy acting in tandem to tackle what is a whopper of a crisis. And I'd say, I'd, I'd go further than that and say the coordination of the fiscal and monetary arms while respecting the individual responsibilities of the Treasury and the bank has been one of the success stories of the crisis response so far, it's only right and proper that the first responders uh, are the central banks and are the treasuries acting in a complementary and mutually reinforcing fashion. That has helped. That is what has happened in the UK. Yeah. All right. Well, 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 thanks very much for that. We'll come back to that. If it's all right with you, I will fire at you a few of the questions, very interesting questions that people have written in with. Um, you can't see their faces, but um, yeah. <laughs> they've written in with it in lots of vigour. Um, first from Simon Maxwell, who's a former director of the Overseas Development Institute, writing in from Brighton. And he's asking whether we are more likely now to enter a new age of austerity, 
really talking about whether the government is not going to have uh, a lot of room for manoeuvre uh, to meet many expectations uh, on the NHS and green, green spending and minimum wages and, uh, and stuff, given given um, how tight uh, its, its budgets are going to be. So new age of austerity, or has the government really got room to fulfil all its agenda? So in some ways, I think I'm, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to answer that question. It's very much a you know fiscal question rather than a monetary question. And um, mm. having said that, I wouldn't want um, the fiscal authorities to compromise monetary independence. The same is true in reverse, that <laughs> I shouldn't um, try and compromise their independence by offering you know, my views on what, on what mm. fiscal policy uh, should do. You know, one thing I would say with some confidence is that you know, whether, it's the, whether it's fiscal actions uh, or, or monetary policy actions, any tightening will only take place uh, when the recovery has been uh, secured. That's in all of our collective interests, whether it's us setting interest rates and QE or the government uh, setting fiscal policy. You know, I think that is the overridingly at the moment the most important thing, that support is offered as long as support uh, is needed. Okay, great. Thanks. Second one from Louis Castro from Bayes, the business department, head of the portfolio office. He says, given that the fundamentals of the economy are relatively healthy before the outbreak, is there room for hope of a V-shaped downturn or are we going to face an L-shaped downturn? Yeah, this goes back to the debate about um, what's your favourite letter of the alphabet. And mine at the moment is definitely a consonant in the form of a V. Uh, and we should live in hope of that and indeed set policy with a view to that. L's are the consonant too, and, and, and L's definitely the one we want to avoid most, uh, because that would suggest there has been some of that longer-term scarring economic damage that I mentioned earlier on, perhaps through firm failure, perhaps through uh, job loss. And in some ways, you know, one of the key aims of both fiscal and monetary policy over the past month or so, Bronwyn, has been the avoidance of that, because we know when that happens... Uh, the scars run deep and last a long time. Uh, an output, you know, the crisis then isn't temporary, it's more longer-lasting or even permanent. And you know, we're doing everything we can to stop that coming to pass, to avoid a V and have something a bit close, uh, avoid an L and have something a bit closer to uh, a uh, V. Now, um, I think a key swing factor in that, in, in determining the shape of the recovery, will be, well, obviously the social distancing policies and how long they last, uh, how much scarring takes place, I've discussed that. The third factor, which is less, depends less on government policy, whether health or economic, and more on people's attitudes, is um, how much will this, will recent events have done to make people feel more cautious about spending, about getting out and about, mm. about travelling, sort of behavioural scarring, if you like. We've seen episodes at times of, of big crashes and crises in the past when we've seen that uh, scarring of uh, risk appetite. It tends to slow down the recovery. Businesses less willing to invest. Uh, households less, less willing to spend. Sort of precautionary savings. Nothing inevitable about that. Um, but I think some of that will definitely happen, even, even as and when those social distancing policies uh, are removed and still be some, I think, uh, private incentives uh, to, to go cautiously in the period 
uh, ahead. So I don't know which what what letter of the alphabet that translates into. Bromley. Maybe it's more like a symbol. Maybe it's more like the Nike swoosh than a, an L or, or a mm. U. Uh, I think if that were the outcome, um, that that wouldn't that that it would then mean it was temporary, uh, and we would get back to base. And and that, from a public policy perspective, given where we are, I think wouldn't be a bad outcome. We may run out of letters of the UK alphabet that, that fit that. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> I'm not going to start re- reaching into Asian alphabets and so on. Um, but, all right, there's two on productivity, which you've written a lot about. Um, one uh, from Mary Tunby, head of policy at the S- Scotland CBI, saying, um, if you think it's going to help or hurt productivity? On the one hand, you've got all kinds of things of, like digital tools being much more widespread. On the other hand, you've got all those kind of redundancies and supply chain blockages and business failures, which we've been talking mm. about. And along with that, Jill Rutter, senior fellow of the IFG, who I think you will know, um, saying, um, could it uh, actually help productivity if um, GDR bounces back faster than employment? Quite a few things in there um, operating on different time horizons. So um, uh, let me maybe speak to them uh, on that sort of time horizon. I mean, in the, in the very short term, you know, the last 10 years we've been saying it wouldn't be lovely if the productivity growth uh, picked up very materially. Uh, actually, at the moment, at least in the, in the current quarter, uh, we'd, we'd like nothing better than if uh, productivity collapsed because we know that output is going to contract very sharply for the reasons we've said, uh, but we don't want employment uh, to collapse. We're doing our damnedest to try and keep people uh, in jobs despite the collapse in activity. So in a funny sort of way, uh, we're actually willing weak productivity in the current quarter at uh, least. Thereafter, uh, and I think this goes to Jill's point, on a more, you know, looking six to nine months ahead, if we're then in the upslope and then, then recovery, we're then, um, we're then ascending our V, or indeed even our Nike swoosh, then we could well see uh, activity picking up at the same time that there are lags in the amount of people um, losing their job. And that might mean a cyclical recovery uh, in productivity if that were to uh, happen. Uh, we should distinguish that cyclical pickup, however, from any structural pickup. And that really takes, I think, us to the first part of the, 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 the first question, which is about you know where what might this do to productivity over the medium term, not in the immediate quarter, not in the next six to nine months, but looking into the middle distance. I mean, there's going to be two factors weighing in opposite directions on that. The first of which is that there has been a hit to business investment. It's like that hit to business investment will continue. It will be compounded by a hit to the risk appetite for those undertaking risky projects or risky new firms, potentially, and that would tend to weigh down uh, on productivity. Work in the opposite direction are two forces, though, which could end up being very potent and more than offsetting the first. One is that there could be something of a cleansing of some of the less productive companies as a result of uh, going through this. I wouldn't want to overstate that, but it's certainly possible that some of that long tail that you and I have spoken about previously, Bronwyn, will will, will no longer be there. More, I think, um, encouragingly, I think there is a chance that what will flow from this 
is a you know rebuilding a business, a rebuilding of our economy, including by a wholesale investment program in much more digital infrastructure than we have ever had uh, previously. And, and who knows, that may even make us more productive uh, in the workplace than what we were previously. I mean, one of the sort of um, very many silver linings, I think, from uh, from this crisis is that we've all had to become a, a bit more digitally skilled than we were previously. Mm. Certainly be good news for my digital skills, and I imagine not just for, for me right now. We knew before this crisis that we had a huge digital skills uh, deficit in this country. You know, what better prompt for filling that deficit than the events of the past uh, month and uh, doubtless the several months ahead? So I think there are forces on both sides of the equation there what i'm well i think i think that's exactly exactly right i mean it's more than a prompt it's a heavy shove between the shoulder blades if you like we've all had to do it um but i i know i think uh, you put it very well we'll have to see how those things play out coming to the end maybe i'll just fire one last question at you we had all kinds of interesting ones but you've covered them including from stefan hobsper uk correspondent for ludove novini uh, for the czech republic's oldest daily paper. Thanks for sending that in. Um, but let me boil down what several of them have said into one uh, succinct last question, which is, do you think this crisis means that the government should think again on ending the Brexit transition on the 31st of December? Oh, um, there are some questions that are um, slightly above your pay grade and some that are massively above. And that one's definitely massively above, Bronwyn. Um, I, I don't feel I've got a, anything sensible or, or, or uh, compelling to say about that. What I would say, uh, this is me dodging the question, of course, is that I do think uh, from this, it will cause us, should cause us, to pause and reflect on the various institutions of state that we have and how well they function. I don't just mean in the public sector, I mean within the private sector and the third sector uh, as well. I mean, I think one of the uh, most significant differences between the government response after the First World War and the government response after the Second World War was how much more institution building flowed from the response to the Second uh, World War. And I hope this crisis, you never let a crisis go to waste. I hope this one uh, does not go to waste. And we reflect hard about how we want to resurrect, uh, rebuild, or in some cases create a new cohort of institutions whether public or international public. ones as well, international, national. The people have talked of Bretton, Bretton Woods, Mark II. Exactly. When think back yeah. to Second World War, we created the Bretton Woods institutions off the back of that. They're still with us, uh, going strong. We never needed them more than now. We created nationally a national health service and a welfare system. That too. Look how that uh, is keeping us from harm's way. Uh, right now, we create a whole set of civic and regional institutions, uh, some of which have actually withered in the period since. We should think about returning to whether they are needed to help out people in communities uh, locally as well as uh, nationally. So my hope would be from all this that it's a massive opportunity for a rethink and perhaps renewal, reformation perhaps, by which I mean not just government institutions, not just government insurance, but the role played by businesses, the role played uh, by worker institutions of various types, 
the work played by, by charities, community groups. Think of the amazing work that they're doing right now and how they might need strengthening for good times uh, as well as bad. You know, for me, uh, those are some of the, uh, the meta questions we should be asking ourselves, uh, alongside, of course, your Brexit question. Well, and I completely agree with you. I'm sure we'll come on to those, those questions, which really go to the heart of what people you know, want and expect from their government and, 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 and the, other, the other way around. And as you said, it's, uh, it's not just people, but the whole of them. Um, civic society to be discussed later i think but uh, on that andy thank you very much for handling all those questions on the whole, whole range of things at a point when it is a uh, you know difficult even to see the scale of what's hit us never mind what's coming um we really appreciate that thank you very much indeed well, we're very good speaking to you as ever and uh, thanks again for the time everyone thanks very much indeed for listening thanks for sending in such a fascinating range of questions do keep them coming on all our ifg live podcasts and do subscribe to this and inside briefing our regular weekly podcast.